My name's Dave Talley, and the course that I'm going to be teaching for you right now, I would call the story and the theology of the Old Testament. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I teach Old Testament at a Christian university, and I also am a teaching elder at a local church, and I love both of those responsibilities that I have. I love to teach people the, the Word of God. I also spend some time traveling with I-Squared Ministries where we are committed to training missionaries to the Muslim world. And with that particular organization, I also teach Old Testament. And so I'm committed to helping God's people understand the message that he has for us in the 39 books preserved for us in what we call the Old Testament. It's the majority of the Bible. And what I want to do in this course is take all of that content and I want to squeeze it into a framework so that you can understand the story of the Old Testament from beginning to end, so that you can appreciate the storehouse of treasure that is found in these books, and so that you can begin the process of engaging in a lifelong study of the precious truths that God wants us to understand. I want you to see God at work through this particular story. He's at work in this world. He's at work accomplishing his purposes and his plans. I want us to see his holiness, that he's high above, that he's set apart. But I also want us to see his loving kindness, that he comes down to humanity. He engages in relationships so that we can know him. I want us to see that he's both great and that he's good. One day, my son, when he was four years old, we were coming home from church and he had learned a song in Sunday school that day. And he was in the back seat singing. The song that he was trying to sing is, Our God is an awesome God. He reigns in heaven above. But the words I heard coming from the back seat were, Our God is a nothing God. There's a big difference between the words awesome and nothing. And so I turned to my son and I said, Andrew, it's not our God is a nothing God. It's our God is an awesome God. And he began to argue with me. No, my Sunday school teacher told me our God is a nothing God. And he's very stubborn. And so I let him continue to sing. And, but as I was driving down the road, I thought to myself, so oftentimes in life, we live as if God is a nothing God rather than living in the reality that God is an awesome God. God wants us to see his greatness and his goodness, that he's awesome, that he's high above, but yet he's involved in this world and he's good to this world. He longs for relationship with this world. He's awesome. And we want to grasp that as we go through this time. There's a plan that God is working out in the Bible. It's not disjointed. It's not all over the place. God's not trying to recoup and go from plan A, oh, that didn't work, to plan B, that didn't work, plan C. God has been from eternity past carrying out a plan to redeem humanity, to become in relationship with humanity. And so I want us to really focus on these books in the Old Testament to try to understand that message. Now, what we're going to focus on is I want to try to strike a balance between the content, and that's the facts, the story, the events, the details, and the theology. And the theology is what God intends for us to understand through the facts, the details, the stories that are contained for us in the Old Testament. I want us to understand this development of this main story and to seek 
to understand what God wants us to know about him, the life that we live on this earth. We need to be able to think our way through all of these stories that are found in the Old Testament, but we must be impressed by who God is. That's the attention. He's always the main character. He's always the hero. We must be drawn into who he is and what he's doing in this world and why he's doing it. These are important concepts for us to understand. You see, I have a passion, and that is for God's people, for the church, even those outside the church, to understand what he's doing in this world and how he's doing that through the message of the Old Testament. The message is powerful, but it's often overlooked. Now, why? Why might the message of the Old Testament be overlooked? There's a number of reasons why this might be true. There are some fears when people walk into the Old Testament. Now, these fears are to varying degrees. The Old Testament depending on what part of the world we're from, depending on what our culture is. The, the Old Testament can be a very different culture. It's a very different time period. These events happened so long ago. The events of these stories are written in a different language. They tell stories differently, so it might be hard for us to follow the way the drama is unfolding for us. It's a different covenant. It's the Old Covenant, the Abrahamic Mosaic Covenant. In the church today, we're a part of the New Covenant. Oftentimes, as the gospel progresses through the world, we also see that when Bible translation projects are undertaken, that oftentimes it's the New Testament that's translated in, into a new language. And the Old Testament is oftentimes overlooked or it's the last one to come along. And so the church universal doesn't always have access to this message that we find in the Old Testament. The church is also a New Testament church. And so the teachings of the New Testament, where we, have, we find it have a tendency to be drawn more into those teachings because they seem more relevant, more applicable to our lives. But we need to understand there are many books in the New Testament that we cannot even understand if we don't know what's going on in the Old Testament. For instance, Galatians, the difficulty of trying to, to, to solve this tension between law and grace you can't even walk into that until you understand the function of law. Or Hebrews, which is talking about Christ being a better way. Better way than what? What's going on in the Old Testament that foreshadows Christ, that leads to Christ, but, is a, but Christ is the ultimate better way? The book of Romans and the, the controversy between the, the Jews and the Gentiles in that book, again, about law and grace. The Old Testament provides the foundation for our understanding of this. However, there are many people who seek to engage with this message. And even then, there's still some obstacles. It just doesn't seem that applicable. It can be confusing. If you read from Genesis to Malachi, you find in the book of Samuel that there's King David. And then at the beginning of 1 Kings, David dies. But then you get to Chronicles and there's King David again. What's going on there? How do we have King David alive, dead? Now he's alive again. Some of the events are the same. Then King David's also found in the Psalms. How does all this work together? This can be confusing for someone who's trying to read through the Old Testament to understand its message, and they get lost in the process. Another obstacle I want us to think about is that the God of the Old Testament is oftentimes contrasted with the God of the New Testament. 
When people look at the Old Testament, they think God is angry, that he's got all this wrath that he pours out on people. But in the New Testament, we've got this loving, grandfatherly kind of God. And people separate these two. We must dismiss that. God is the same. He always is the same. God is never changing. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And we need to move into the story of the Old Testament and see the riches of his grace in the midst of this story. He's not a vengeful, wrathful God in the Old Testament, but he must be taken seriously. In fact, he's a very loving God and it just spills out on every single page. We've got to read the story. We've got to pay close attention to see this God of mercy throughout the Old Testament as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture, that's Old and New Testament, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. It's, it's what we need. Now, remember, when Paul is writing to Timothy, there really is no New Testament. He's referring to the Bible that they had access to in that particular day, which was the Old Testament, inspired by God and profitable. And I want us to understand, how is it profitable for doctrine, a reproof, correction, instruction, life, in righteousness. How does this book apply to our lives? There is a deep, there is a rich theology in the Old Testament. As we read the story, that theology comes out so clear. And I want us to apply that to our lives. In Hebrews 4, in verses 12 and 13, it talks about the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it divides the heart, it penetrates, it gets into us and brings about transformation. The author of Hebrews is, is referring to what? What word of God? Well, the Old Testament, basically. See, it's alive and it's powerful. It's rich. And I want us to understand what God intends for us to understand in this message. We cannot overlook it. So let's learn. How can we understand the story of the Old Testament better? What's gonna help us along the way? The first step that I wanna work our way through in this particular teaching session is that we need to understand what I'm gonna call the storyline. In other words, when we think about the books Genesis to Malachi and all the details, all the events, all the stories that are there, it's important for us to understand that there is a storyline. And what I mean by that is there is a sequence of events that we can pull out of all these books and it gives to us the story, everything in the story from beginning to end that God wants us to understand. And so I want us to pull those events out and put them in a sequential order so that we can see that story. It's a beautiful novel. And I want us to pull all those stories out so we can see beginning to end. And then I want us to understand, well, how does everything else connect? How does everything else in the Old Testament fit into this sequence of events that we call the story of the Old Testament? And as we work our way through this story and we see the details, the contents, the events that take place, I want us to pay close attention to who God is and how he relates to this world and we can see what he's doing, the theology that's there for us to work our way through. 
So the storyline. Now let's think about the, the big picture of the Bible. When we think about this precious message, this is God's message to humanity. I hope we never lose how important that is. God has communicated to us. Think about that. I mean, that's amazing. Almighty, eternal God has communicated to us in words, in a book. And we can open these, open this, these books and read these words and we're drawn into the story. Everything that God wants us to know. Now, this isn't everything there is to know. It's not even everything there is about God. God is not bound up by this book. He cannot be stuffed inside this book and say, this is all there is to know about God. Uh, he's much bigger than that. But this is what he wants us to know. God is not any less than what's in this book. But throughout all of eternity, we're gonna be finding out God's a whole lot more than is in this book. This is a precious word. But these books were written over a period of about 1,500 years, probably by about 40 different authors, 30 in the Old Testament, 10 or so in the New Testament. It's hard to understand the authorship of certain books. These authors were from different time periods. We go way back in time in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's not that too far back into the past. They come from different time periods. They come from different occupations. We've got kings. We've got shepherds. We've got fishermen. We've got physicians. I mean, all different kinds of occupations and different kind of backgrounds as well. They, they bring all of their background into the writing of the stories Paul was a persecutor of the church. And this is part of who he is as he writes to God's people and pours out his heart to them because he knows, he knows what it was like to be separated and rebellious and he calls people to intimacy with God. So we've got this big picture of the Bible written over a long period of time. But remember, the ultimate author behind these books is God. It's all inspired by God. It's God breathed. It's a message to us. Now, by the time of Christ, we can clearly see that what we have in the Old Testament was already divided into three major sections. Look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're gonna see a reference to these three divisions of the Old Testament, in Luke chapter 24, in verse 27, it says, and this is Jesus, he's talking to the disciples, he is risen from the grave, and they met him on the road to Emmaus, and he reveals himself to them, and in the upper room, he, he also comes to them and talks to them, but in chapter 24, in verse 27, Jesus says, it, the story tells us this, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You see that there? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now, later on in verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me, now notice, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Now, what is Jesus referring to? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. You see, the Old Testament is already divided up into three different categories. We could see the same thing in Acts 24, 14, 
Acts 26, 23, the apostle Paul makes reference to these three different parts of the Old Testament. So there was a way of understanding the Old Testament. There was a way in which the Old Testament was put together. Moses' writings, the prophets, and then also the Psalms as Jesus refers to it. So by the time of Christ, we have these three divisions, the law of Moses, the prophets, and then the writings. Now, the prophetic books, the Jewish mindset understands that a little bit different than we do. Um, some of the books that they call prophets, the, the former prophets, are actually historical books from our understanding, but yet they fit into this larger category. And so from the, the history of Israel, from the crossing of the Jordan, that would be Joshua, to the exile in Babylon, that's all the way moving through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, all of that is considered former prophets. But then they also have latter prophets, which are what we would call prophetic books. Isaiah, all the way through Malachi, where spokespersons for God speak into the lives of the Israelites. But then we also have the writings, and this can be a variety of books. Predominantly, they're wisdom literature, poetic, focused, but also there's some historic books that we would consider historic books that are found in them. And so the Bible slowly gets divided up and it's put together with this kind of understanding. Now, through time, as the Bible is bound together, we have three different units. Now, Bibles are put together a little differently around the world. In America, we have three very clear divisions and we have a grouping of books put together because they have a common purpose, a common focus. We have historical books. That's the first 17 books of the Old Testament. We might call these stories. And then we have the last 17 books of the Old Testament. Those are the prophetic books. We might think of those as sermons. So we've got historic and we've got prophetic, the stories and the sermons. And then the middle five giving us a total of 39. The middle five are the poetic books, Job through Song of Songs, and their focus, we might call them songs. So we've got stories at the beginning, sermons at the end, songs in the middle. Well, what is the relationship of all this? It, it's a nice packaging of material. Let's put all the historical books together. Let's put all the poetic books together. Let's put all the prophetic books together. But how do they all fit together? And that can be confusing for us as we try to engage the message. So what is the storyline? 17 um, historic, five poetic, 17 prophetic. Where's the story in all of that? Basically, as we look at these 39 books of the Old Testament, there are 11 books that contain the continuous narrative beginning to end of what God is doing in the Old Testament. 11 books out of 39, 11 books that sequential story. Now, there are some books outside of these 11 books that contain important details and all of the books are essential for us to under understand what God is doing in this world. Remember, he's always the hero. He's always the focus. But these 11 books, if we read them continuously, they bring us into the story of the Old Testament. That's why I call it the story line. This is the, the line of stories from beginning to end that God wants us to understand. Now, what are those books? 
Let me tell you what books are contained in these 11 books. And then let me walk our way through an overview of these books so that we can understand the basic message and how all of this is packaged, how it's all put together, and what is that overall story that God wants us to understand. The 11 books, Genesis, and then the story moves to Exodus, and then the story will continue on into the book of Numbers. Joshua will pick the story up from there into Judges, First and Second Samuel, to First and Second Kings, and then Ezra, Nehemiah. So Genesis, to Exodus, to Numbers, to Joshua, to Judges, First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. Now, if those are the 11 books, think about it. Basically, the story of the Old Testament, when we think about that storyline, that continuous narrative, it ends with the book of Nehemiah. That's where the story closes. Now, if those are the 11 books of the storyline, we also need to understand how do the rest of the books contribute to this story? What is their purpose? How do they fit? Okay, we might think of the word fit. How do they fit into that storyline. For instance, Leviticus is not a part of the storyline books. Well, how does it fit in there? Well, we wanna look at that, especially the historic books. Each individual book, what is their purpose? How do they function? So let's work our way through it little by little and try to understand what this message is. First, we've got Genesis. Genesis begins with this big picture of creation. God speaks into the existence of the world and then there's a long series of events. A lot of time goes by during the book of Genesis. Even in the first 11 chapters, there are 20 generations at least that occur during that time. There are two genealogies that are provided for us, each containing 10 generations. And so we cover a lot of time in the first 11 chapters as God explains what he's doing in this world. And then we get to chapter 12 and go to chapter 50 and we have four generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph down in Egypt. And so there's a certain focus there. God begins the world, he creates it, he's at work. We've got all these things taking place in the world. God sets his affection on Abram through covenant. It's passed on to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, and there was this promise of land to Abram. So what's Joseph doing down in Egypt? Okay, but that's where the story ends. And you can't stop there. We got to find out about the land. What about the promise of land? Why is God's people down in Egypt right now? What about the land? Well, that's where Exodus is going to pick up the story. And Exodus moves us from the birth of Moses. So there's a time period, a time, time that goes by in between the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. And it begins us really with these, this, this group that has gone down to Egypt and we focus in on the birth of Moses and it takes us all the way up to God bringing his people out of Egypt and the setting up of the tabernacle. And at the end of Exodus, it's this beautiful moment where the glory of God comes down on the tabernacle. Now, what's gonna happen now? Still, we've got the question, what about the land? I mean, what are we gonna do about that? We got this promise to Abram. Well, Numbers is going to pick up that story. Tabernacle's there. God's dwelling amongst his people. And he's still going to take them to the land. And so Numbers is going to pick up that story. It's going to be this journey to the promised land. Now, before we get there, 
we've got the book of Leviticus. How does that fit into the storyline? It's not unimportant. It's extremely important. But imagine the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai receiving the law. God has set his affection on a nation. He set his affection on Abram. Abram's become this big nation now. Now God sets his affection on them. We've got this holy God coming down to live in the midst of a sinful humanity that God wants to set apart for his purposes. How is God gonna dwell in their midst? That's the book of Leviticus. Leviticus explains to us how does a holy God maintain fellowship with an unholy people who, if the message continues on in the Old Testament, they're likely to sin. How's that gonna happen? The beauty of the book of Leviticus is God says to his people, you are to be holy as I am holy. But notice already God's grace. You see, many people look at the law as this burden, this oppressive God who just puts on people, weights and burdens. That's not the purpose at all. God calls them into relationship. He's a holy God and he wants them to live in a certain way so that he can dwell in their midst. Why? Because he wants relationship with them. Now, let me see. Let me show you the beauty of who God is. We're going to talk about this later. But the beauty of who God is, is he says, I want you to be holy as I'm in, I am holy. But the whole book of Leviticus is about, and when you are not Here's how you make it right. You can come back into fellowship with me. I'm not gonna destroy you. I'm not gonna push you away. I'm not gonna do away with you. I'm gonna give you a way to come back into relationship with me. And so the book of Leviticus is really a priestly manual that explains how sacrifices function. And when there's an offense, how you make that right with other people and how you make that right with God and we'll talk more about that later. So the book of Leviticus comes about because the tabernacle, because God dwells in their presence. It does not advance the story for us. It tells us, how's this tabernacle gonna work? How's it possible for God to dwell amongst his people? All that happens at Mount Sinai. Exodus already has us there. So the tabernacle's built at the end of Exodus. Numbers now picks up the story and it's the journey to the promised land. And so the book of Numbers has the complete story of the wilderness journey from Sinai up into the entrance into the promised land. They're on the plains of Moab. And we've also got a lot that happens in this book. We move from a first generation to a second generation because of the sinful consequences of disobedience. And they have to bear those consequences. And so along the way, we get to see many of the events of this story and what God is doing with his people. Now, so it brings him to the plains of Moab. Then Joshua continues the story and shows the conquest of the land, shows the dividing of the land. So what about the book of Deuteronomy? How does that fit? Deuteronomy fits right at the end of the book of Numbers. And in this particular time, what we have is this first generation has died. And the second generation now is gonna be the one that's gonna take the land. But we've got Moses. Moses is not gonna go into the land. He's been the wise leader that's been watching over the nation of Israel for all these years, but he's gonna die before he goes in the land too. And so in Deuteronomy, what we have are what I would call the final sermons of Moses. He's the last living old guy. And now he's gonna pass his wisdom onto the people and call them to obedience. He's gonna get them to reflect on their past and enter into this covenant renewal with the Lord, this new generation. It doesn't advance the story. It's Moses. He's there 
And he's got three sermons that he wants to deliver to people. And we're going to focus on that and see those sermons and understand what is the theology of that? What is Moses trying to drive home? But Joshua is the book that picks up the story. Numbers brings them to the entrance of the promised land. Joshua picks that up right there on the plains of Moab. Now they're going to take the land and we see the conquest. We see the dividing and then we've got a new generation and that's where Judges is now going to pick up the story. And we've got Judges that picks up what life is like in the land and it's not very pretty what happens in the land. We've got a lot of sin. God's people are not living as God's people should. There's this, this cycle, of the ups and downs of following the Lord. They walk with the Lord for a while and then they fall into sin and God raises up an enemy nation to oppress them and cause them pain so that they cry out to him and he raises up a deliverer and brings them deliverance until they again fall into sin and you go through these cycles. Well, eventually, at some point, we have this, this generation that God's got to do something about. I mean, what's going to happen? And so that, the book of Samuel is going to pick this up. But we've also got this book of Ruth. Ruth very clearly tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, it came about, came about in the time period of the judges. So Ruth does not advance the story for us. Ruth fits into the time period of the judges, this cycle that continues to go on. And Ruth shows us that not everybody was as depraved as what we see in the book of Judges. There were godly people. Look at Boaz. He's living according to the law. And we also see Gentile salvation. Ruth, the Moabitess, comes into the relationship with Yahweh and becomes a part of his people, part of the genealogy of Christ when you get to the New Testament. God is redeeming. He's not just working through the nation of the Jews, but also Gentiles are coming to know him. So Ruth doesn't advance the story. It gives us a beautiful picture of God preserving his seed as we await the coming of Messiah. Now, so we move from Judges into Samuel. Now remember, the book of Samuel begins with the cycle of the judges, so much depravity, so much sin. God's people are not living like God intends for them to live, but God's gonna continue his work. So when we get to the book of Samuel, we have the introduction to the kingdom and we have Samuel, this great prophet who guides Israel through this process. And then we have the first king, King Saul, second king, King David, and then that story continues as we get the first kings, David dies, and then we have our third king, Samuel, I mean Solomon. But because of his sinful life as well, because of what happens at the end of his life, God has to bring judgment, and the kingdom is taken from Solomon, and it's divided into the northern and the southern kingdom. And kings carries that story, and we see king after king, kings of Israel, kings of Judah, the north, the south, and all the turmoil that takes place. And again, it's not a very pretty picture. There is a focus on revivals along the way. God continues to work. God's purposes will not be stopped He's going to continue for it. doesn't matter how bad, how sinful humanity is. God is moving forward his plans. In his mercy, he continues to work with his people. And so God continues to bring about times of revival. Now, Kings ends with a time period that we're going to call the exile. And we can just draw a line between 2 Kings and Ezra and just put exile there. There's 70 years 
that transpire. Israel, because of their sin, is taken out of the land. That is the ultimate, the ultimate discipline is for them to lose the land that was promised to Abram and given to the nation of Israel, and now they lose it. And so they're taken out of the land. That's the seven years of exile Daniel gives us insight into that particular time period. Ezekiel gives us insight. Some of the other prophets do as well. But we've got these 70 years. The story then gets picked up again in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we have this three returns back to the land. Zerubbabel brings a return. Ezra brings a return. Nehemiah brings a return. God is not done. He brings his people back to the land. His plan continues to move forward. His purposes will not be stopped. And so the story moves from 2 Kings to Ezra. Well, what about First and Second Chronicles? How do they fit into the story? One of the difficulties of First and Second Chronicles is that there is a lot of repetition with these two books and the books of First and Second Kings. We've got the kings and the divided kingdom and kings and chronicles both go through all that material. But what we need to understand about First and Second Chronicles is it's not just wasted space in the Old Testament, there is a purpose to these two books. The purpose is that First and Second Chronicles focuses on these revivals. It focuses on this right relationship with God, and it's written to those who are after the exile. It's written to the people in the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah, where we see the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed where we see the temple has been destroyed and now they're back in the land and they're rebuilding their city, they're rebuilding their walls and they're discouraged. They've got opposition and First Second Chronicles is written to encourage them, stay the course, continue to follow after God. Why? Because God blesses those who walk in relationship with him. And so the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles focus on these revivals and how God responds and blesses, encouraging the people of Ezra and Nehemiah to do the same. Build the temple. Why? So you can have proper worship of the Lord. Why? So that you can walk in fellowship with him. Why? So that he can pour out his blessing on you because God is a God who wants to bless He's not this mean God in the sky. He's doing everything he can to bless people. Everything. He's got the sacrificial system set up. He's revealing himself in the written word. He's calling people to obedience. He wants to bless. And so First Saint Chronicles says, people, Ezra and Nehemiah of your day, people, follow the Lord. Walk in obedience. Continue down that path because God will bless you. Well, The story at the end of 2 Kings is picked up in Ezra when they're coming back into the land. And so they come back in these three returns. And as they come back in the land, they're up against a lot of opposition. And so basically in the book of Ezra, we have the building of the temple and the restoration of sacrifice and a lot of sins that can need to continue to be dealt with. So there's a lot of reform. The people have been disciplined by God. They've been taken into exile, but it doesn't mean that their hearts are changed. God's still calling them back. And so we got a lot of reform. And then when you get to the book of Nehemiah, we have a focus on building the walls around Jerusalem. Again, fortifying the city so that they can become an established entity, a nation, 
so they can recapture the glory days that they had underneath Solomon so they can become strong again as God pours out blessing. That's what Ezra Nehemiah is moving toward. But at the end of Nehemiah, that's where the story ends. And when you get there, you realize there's gotta be more. This can't be where the story ends. What about the blessing? What about God's people? What about Messiah? All these questions abound when you get to Ezra and Nehemiah. And we'll talk about that. Because when you get to the end of the Old Testament, you know there's more. There's more. And that's the New Testament. That's the coming of Messiah. That's the fulfillment, the culmination of God's redemptive plan and all that he wants to do. But we've got all this background in the Old Testament. So Nehemiah is where the story of the Old Testament ends. How does Esther fit into there? Esther is a story that shows us that not everybody comes back from Babylon. That's where they go into exile is in Babylon. But they're there for 70 years. They get established. They have lives. They have occupations. They have friends. And Esther is actually a queen. So not everybody comes back to the land, but Esther shows us so clearly that God continues to watch over his people no matter where they are. Whether they're in the nation of Israel, in the land, the promised land, or back in Babylon, God watches over his people. And this is all the beginning of understanding that people, God's people are gonna be scattered throughout the world and he'll watch over them wherever they are. This is the beginning of understanding this explosion of moving throughout the world, but God is there. He watches over and Esther reminds us of that and brings comfort to God's people. But the story ends with Nehemiah. And so those are the historical books. That's how the storyline progresses in those 11 books. That's how the other historic books fit in, Leviticus and how it fits into Exodus, Deuteronomy. It's a bridge between Numbers and Joshua. Ruth fits right in the time period of Judges. First and Second Chronicles, it talks about all the information in Kings, but it's addressing the concerns, the message to those after the exile in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and then Esther. Not everybody goes back to land, but God continues to watch over them. But the story beginning to end, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, that's the story. From beginning of creation to God's continuing work with his people at the end of the Old Testament, God's plan, it's God's work. It's about God. It's about what he's doing. He's always the focus. He's always the hero. But what about poetic books? We've got Job through Song of Songs. Are they just wasted space in the Bible? No. Job through Song of Songs is absolutely important to who we are as people in relationship with God. In the poetic books, they actually fit back into the the storyline books, mostly during the time of King David or King Solomon. They wrote a lot of poetic literature. We've got Job, who was possibly back in the time period of Genesis, but they have a commonality to them. They don't advance the story for us, but they fit within God's purposes and God's work in this world. And in the poetic books, we have these expression of dependence on God in the midst of living in a world that's all messed up. What do we do with the problem of evil? Job through Song of Songs tries to deal with that. What do we do when wicked people prosper? Okay, 
the poetic literature allows people to pour out their emotion to God and we watch the good theology that wins the day. It's a, not about human experience in this world and it's about God. And so eyes are always thrown upward, but humans have emotions and they express them in this poetic literature. It's expressed all over the place. They pour out their heart to God. But in the end, God reveals himself to them and they learn more about God. Think about the end of Job. I mean, what an incredible life he had and just the pain, the difficulty of losing everything. And then at the end of the book, he says, now I see, now I see God was refining Job so that he could know him in deeper, more intimate ways. He could see his glory because of the joy that that brings. Well, the poetic literature brings us into that. Wisdom literature brings us into that. Proverbs looks at life and says, this seems to be true. They aren't promises, they're proverbs. It seems, the proverb says, that if you raise a child up in the way he should go, when he's old, he won't depart from it. Now, that's not always true. Some children are raised in the discipline and the admonition of the Lord. And when they get old, they walk away from the Lord. That's not a promise there, but it's a proverb. That's generally true. If children are pointed toward the Lord, they'll stay on that course. God continues to do a work in them. And so proverbs reflect on everyday life and provide wisdom. So what's the wisdom? Well, train your child up in the ways of the Lord. Because you've got a likelihood, a probability that when he's old, he won't walk away from that. He'll stay the course. So that's how the poetic literature, Job through Song of Songs, fits in. Doesn't advance the story, just fits into the story that's already there. These events, these details that are unfolding for us, these are the expressions of humanity in the midst of that story. As people try to follow God in the midst of the complexities of life, they find him. He's there. And they meet him in the midst of all their emotions. Now, what about prophetic books? We've got Isaiah through Malachi, the last 17 books of the Old Testament. There is a commonality to these books as well. In each of these books, this is a message from God through a prophet to his people, calling his people back to covenant faithfulness. Israel constantly wanders away from the Lord continuously is being drawn away by other gods and the desires of this world. And God, now notice this, in his mercy. God doesn't have to do this. He's already set the law out there. He's already invited them into relationship and they wander. And what does God do? He goes after them. That's what God does. That's who God is. He goes after people. He's merciful. Sure, he's holy too, but he's good. He's good. And so God goes after them. It's through the prophets. He's calling them back. And you read the prophets and you think, oh my goodness, he's a God of wrath. He's so angry. Lighten up, God. And we're, we're reading the prophets wrong when we read them that way. God is doing everything he can to bring his people back. He's warning them. He's calling them to account. Life in this world is not about humanity. It's about God. And we've got to get that right. Israel's got to get that right. It's about him. And when they wander, there's consequences of that. But God in his mercy says, I want to help you. And he starts bringing them back. It's also during the time period of the prophets that we begin to see that something bigger is going to take place. And we begin to see these promises of one who is going to come, the Messiah, 
one who's going to come. We begin to see promises of a new covenant where the law is no longer written on tablets of stone like Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, which the people couldn't keep. But God was going to do something spectacular and the law was going to be written on the heart. We see that God's going to pour out his spirit on all people, not just certain leaders like Moses and the other elders who would prophesy because they were filled with the spirit. But God was going to send an outpouring of his spirit and there was going to be this radical transformation that there was an eternal kingdom that was coming, one who was going to come who would be an eternal king, not like the earthly kings who passed away but an eternal king. So the prophets speak truth in the contemporary situation all along the way. And mostly these prophets fit within the books of Kings to Nehemiah. That's where they fit. They don't advance the story for us. They fit right into the story that we already have. Kings, especially second Kings, Ezra and Nehemiah. That's where these prophets fit. They also fit during the time of exile. Daniel, Jeremiah, calling the people back to faithfulness. God in his mercy, meeting people in their place of need. 11 books, though, are what contains the story for us from beginning to end. Listen, it is a novel. It is a novel that is fascinating. It's a novel of great interest. It's got all the characteristics of a good story. You've got tragedy. You've got hope. You've got blessing. You've got people wandering and running and being pulled back in. You've got deception and treachery, all the makings of a good story. It's incredible. And I challenge you to read these books in succession and you'll see that story. You'll see the story. Let me close with this. As we think about this particular message and all that's going on, let me read these words by Philip Yancey. He says this, out of their tortured history, we've got the ups and downs of Israel. The the Jews demonstrate the most surprising lesson of all. You cannot go wrong personalizing God. You cannot go wrong personalizing him. God is not a blurry power out there with nothing to do with our lives somewhere in the sky. He's not an abstraction like Greek mythology might propose. He's not a sensual superhuman like different cultures have worshiped. And he's definitely not this absent, absent God who has nothing to do with our world. God is personal. And what I mean by that, or what Yancey means by that is he enters into people's lives. He messes with families. He shows up in unexpected places. He chooses unlikely leaders God calls people to account, but most of all, God loves. He loves. That's what we see in the story. This is what the great Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel said to the prophet. God does not reveal himself in abstract absoluteness, but in a personal and intimate relation to the world. He's not gone. He's there. He's above, but he's also involved. He's engaged. He goes on and says, he does not simply command and expect obedience. No, he's not that kind of God. He's also moved. He's affected by what happens in the world and he reacts accordingly. Events and human actions in this world can arouse in God joy or sorrow, pleasure or wrath. 
man's deeps, man's actions may move him, affect him, grieve him, or on the other hand, gladden and please him. He continues saying, the God of Israel is a God who loves, a God who is known to and concerned with humanity. He not only rules the world in the majesty of his might and wisdom, but he reacts intimately to the events of history. Now, Yancey continues and he says this, more than any other word pictures, God chooses children and lovers to describe our relationship with him as being intimate and personal. The Old Testament abounds with husband-bride imagery. God woos his people and dotes on them like a lover doting on his beloved. And when they ignore him, he feels hurt and spurned like a jilted lover. When we shift the metaphors, it also demonstrates that we are God's children. In other words, the closest, and listen to this, the closest we can come to understanding how God looks upon us is by thinking about the people who mean the most to us, our children and our lovers. You see, that's the message of the Old Testament. A God who is so far above, so far beyond, he's holy, which means he's other than anything in this world. He's other than any of that. He's far beyond all of that. But he comes down because he wants relationship with people. Children and lovers, those are the images that we have of God. We're his children. He bestows love on us, the bride of Christ. God enters into intimate relationship with people. That's the story of the Old Testament. Now, what we want to do as we work our way through this series is we want to work through each one of those storyline books and understand a little bit of the content, but mostly the rich theology that's there. Who God is, how he's working in this world, and what he wants us to understand. That's what's in store for us.